follow along with me if you can. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? but I have been watching you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Mark. And a real thank you to the band as well. I just felt absolutely transported um, into God's presence then. Thank you so much uh, for that. Should we pray? For those of you who don't know me, by the way, uh, my name is Matt, and I'm on the team at St. Michael's. It's great to be with you. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask that, uh, that by your spirit you would have access to us, that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear everything that you want to say to us. And I ask as well that you wouldn't leave me on to my own ideas or my own resources, but that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a subject which provokes more passion uh, than the subject of injustice, uh, whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter or uh, Me Too or climate injustice. And part of the reason I think that we care so much about justice um, is because of how it feels when we see justice not being served, when the powerful abuse their position and hurt other people, it provokes us, doesn't it? When evil dictators sort of corruptly stay in office indefinitely, slowly killing off or imprisoning their opponents, it provokes us. Well, the Bible teaches repeatedly that God is a God of justice. 
from the Old Testament right the way through to Revelation, we're repeatedly told that God is a God of justice. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham cries out and says, "Um, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Hebrews 12.23 speaks of God, the judge of all. Jesus Christ himself said, the father judges no one, but has what? Has entrusted all judgment to the son. Paul the apostle says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So scripture is absolutely saturated with the theme of God's justice. And that's why the title for today's message is, Why a God of Justice is Good News for Us. Why a God of Justice is Good News for Us. Now, for a bit of context, the reading that we just heard is called the Temple Sermon. It's one of the most famous chapters in the book of Jeremiah and the Old Testament. And what's going on is that God has told Jeremiah uh, to warn God's people that they're living in a way that is um, completely contrary to his purposes. So it says that they're worshipping idols, that they're, they're stealing, uh, murdering, committing adultery, perjury. Uh, you can read it all in verse 9. And that if they don't repent, that is if they don't change their ways, if they don't turn to trust and obey God, that God's judgment is coming. And that judgment will come in the form of um, foreign armies who will destroy Jerusalem and take the people into a long exile. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, we see him courageously standing in the gap and pleading with God's people to come back to him in order to avoid that catastrophe. So why is a God of justice good news for us? The first reason that I see in this text is that God is committed to our transformation. That God is committed to our transformation. So just listen to verse 3 again. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. An alternative way of translating it could be uh, reform your way of life. And the scale of the transformation that God wants to do among his people is pretty seismic, isn't it? It covers almost every area of life. It covers how they live in verse 5. How they treat the most vulnerable in society in verse 6. It covers their relationships in verse 9. But to top it all off, and most strikingly, it covers their worship. So at the end of verse 6, it says, um, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. Or again, halfway through verse 9, will you burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. And it, it might sound unthinkable to sort of, as you picture this, that the true worship of God could be lined up right alongside the worship of idols. And yet that's exactly what has happened. And because God is a God of justice, he sees through that pretense and he says only a total transformation of their lives will be sufficient to deal with this problem. Reform your ways 
and your actions. Now, the prospect of transformation is a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? On the one hand, it can sound exciting because it's change and growth, and it is those things, but the transformation that God brings can also be painful sometimes, uh, challenging. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, the great Oxford apologist, puts it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation, Lewis goes on, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. And it's a bit like that in this reading. A God of justice is good news because it means that God is committed to our, resol- to our um, transformation. He's set on it. And even when that transformation sometimes feels too drastic or too painful, it's a bit like you know, the insect, the caterpillar. Uh, I doubt very much that a caterpillar, you know, before it becomes a butterfly, can even conceive or understand of what it is to be a butterfly. When it's inside, you know, that, that cocoon, I'm, I'm, I, I, the biologists here will have to correct me, but I'm told you have to, you know, it's, it's quite a physical process. They have to struggle and break out of the cocoon. And I imagine it hurts if insects feel pain. And in a similar way, God is committed to transforming us, to be like Jesus. But where I wonder is the Holy Spirit saying to you, Actually, I want to reform that area of your life. And the challenging thing about this passage I found as I was reading into it is that it's kind of saying that we can come to church on a Sunday, we can say all the right things while actually denying Christ in the other areas of our lives during the week. And I feel that kind of uh, battle and tension myself all the time. You know, it can be singing loud in worship but then falling straight back into the old gossip or toxic office politics during the week. It can be being kind and patient with absolutely everyone in your life during the week, but then losing your temper and being unkind to your family when you get home. It can be knowing all of the right answers in home group, but then secretly watching something online that you know you shouldn't. But God is so gracious. He's so gracious. He doesn't just give up on his people. He sends a message. He sends a message of transformation. Verse 1 says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is not Jeremiah's own kind of just human ideas. This is a word God has given him for his people. And of course, God still does that. He's here today with the same message in essence, verse three, reform your ways and your actions. 
Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we can um, obey our way into God's forgiveness somehow. Jesus, you know, came and shed his blood on the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sins. That's, that's not what I'm saying. No, it's because it's more like a changed life always follows a changed heart. A person who is genuinely forgiven will always try to live differently. Why is a God of justice good news? Because it means that God is committed to our transformation. And I'd just encourage us to follow his leading today and to surrender to him, whatever he brings to the surface in worship. But the second reason that a God of justice is good news is because it means um, that God is completely worthy of our trust. That God is completely worthy of our trust. I wonder if you've ever experienced the kind of horrible experience of someone lying to you. Uh, Maybe someone betrayed you in some way or didn't have your back or didn't do what they promised they would do and it's an awful feeling, isn't it? The witness declaration in a court of law um, says this. It says, I swear by almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And while that may or may not be true in the witness box, it is always true of God. Because God is a God of justice. God does not and will not lie, ever. And that is exceptionally good news for us. And in the context of this passage, um, he says in verse four, do not trust in deceptive words. Another way of putting it would be, do not um, put trust the lie. And this lie is leading the people to get a false sense of security in the context of the passage from the temple. It's why we get that threefold repetition Uh, that Mark read so well for us. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Basically, his hearers are saying, the temple means that Jerusalem is always gonna be safe from invading armies. And God speaking through Jeremiah says, that is wrong, that's a lie. And what's challenging here is that God's people were onto a kind of half-truth, and, and often a lot of damage is not done uh, in the service of um, outright falsity. Sometimes all it takes is a half-truth to be twisted to cause all sorts of problems. Because God had promised to them an eternal dynasty from King David onward, and that this dynasty would be based around Jerusalem and around the temple. But slowly over time, the people um, fell into a kind of lazy confidence that because of these promises... God um, sort of was owed them protection. They basically had God in their back pocket. And so instead of kind of humbly and gratefully receiving this incredible promise, they were now using that promise um, as an excuse to live in explicit disobedience to God, all the while maintaining the sort of religious and ceremonial facade and hiding their deeper problems. And so God challenges them and says that that promise of protection was actually dependent on the people living in obedience to God, being faithful to him. That was the deal. That's what the word of 
Covenant essentially means that a deal with God, that to live in open disobedience to God while treating the temple as some kind of uh, magic protection, uh, that it doesn't work like that. In fact, God goes on to say that um, if the people don't turn back to him, that he'll remove their protection. And tragically, that's what happens in Jeremiah. The people ignore Jeremiah's warnings and foreign armies come and destroy Jerusalem and take the people off into a massive exile. So this is not um, you know, alternative facts, as Trump would put it, or you know, my truth, to put it in Oprah terms. No, this is, this is about the piercing eyes of God's holiness exposing what's really going on. And his verdict is clear, isn't it? A total change of life, a total transformation is what is going to be necessary. It's a bit like I, I was quite a rebellious teenager growing up, it might surprise you to know. And um, in uh, a previous life, my friends and I used to go and smoke behind the bike sheds at school. And I used to desperately try to cover up the evidence that I'd been smoking uh, from my dad by dousing myself in deodorant before I got home from school. Um, it never worked, and it, we'd always have these exchanges where my dad would see through my pretense, and he would essentially say, well, Matt, have you been smoking? And I would lie every single time and say, no, I, I promise I haven't been smoking. Uh, and one time, to try to deter me from smoking, he even threatened to change my name, jokingly, legally, to change my name to... Um, I wonder if you can guess what it, what it was. It was Norris Blacklung. I'll never forget that. And I'm still half expecting to stumble across some evidence that he actually did change my name, but I'm led to believe he didn't. But the older I've got, the more I've realized that what my dad actually wanted uh, was for me to drop the pretense and to just be honest. He, uh, it would have been safe for me to do that. I realized that what my dad wanted was my heart. And that's what this reading is saying. God is saying to his people, I want your heart. I want you to be real. I want you to be honest. I want you to let me speak the truth to you, to transform you from the inside out. And it's like he says, I'm interested in how you actually live your life with your family, in the office, in the school, how you spend your money, because I'm interested in your heart. And in verse 6, it's how we actually interact with the, the vulnerable and weakest uh, in society that God pays attention to as well. So it says in verse 6, if you do not oppress the foreigner, uh, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I'll let you live in this place. It's teaching that part of the way that God uh, measures a heart that's been put right with him is by how we treat weak and vulnerable people around us. In Jeremiah's culture, it would have been the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow who would have been at the greatest risk of exploitation from richer, more powerful people. And it's teaching this, that God watches how we relate to people with less power, with less agency than us, very carefully indeed. And he does so because how we treat vulnerable people actually reveals the extent to which we know him. If you just think of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, there's a, he says um, that Jesus didn't count equality with God 
Just think of that, equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing in order that he could come to save desperately lost and perishing people like you and me. Well, if God did that for us, how could we ever treat vulnerable or weak people with contempt, given the helpless state that we were in when Jesus saved us? And yet, tragically, this can happen all the time, I think. Bullying leadership has been in the news recently, uh, for those who've been watching it. I don't think anyone goes into leadership with the aim of being a bully, but for those of us who are in positions of authority or influence or with economic clout, it's worth humbly reflecting on this question. How do the people who work for me experience me? And especially those at the bottom of the financial and economic food chain. Do I show an interest in them? Do I show honor and respect? Or can I be dismissive or impatient or harsh? Well, this passage that God teaches that God cares about all of that. And I felt so challenged by this passage as I've been thinking about it and praying it through. Because he's teaching that how we treat vulnerable people shows in many ways, the degree to which we've understood God's justice. Another example that comes to mind is the, uh, the racism and the rejection that the Windrush generation faced when they uh, tried joining UK churches. Uh, the church can get complicit in the sort of injustice Jeremiah's talking about here. Why is a God of justice good news? Because it means God is committed to our transformation. It means that God is utterly worthy of our trust. He never, never lies. And finally, it means that God is guaranteed to be victorious. There's that phrase, isn't there? I don't know if you've heard it. Um, History is written by the victor. And that can often be the case, can't it, in life, in quite a sad and frustrating way. So often the powerful do get to write history, don't they, if we're honest? So often the rich do get richer and the poor get poorer. So often those who least deserve it get to live in security and completely unaccountable power. And so often evil just seems to flourish. But we have this powerful word in Jeremiah in which God tells us four crucial words in verse 11 that change everything. And the words are this, I have been watching. I have been watching. It's teaching that nobody gets away with anything ultimately. And as Christians, we can say that history is written by the victor. And that's not a depressing fact because the, depress- the, the, the victor is Jesus Christ. And in the end and through Christ, God will have the decisive and final victory um, over evil. But only God has the power and the authority to dispatch justice perfectly. It's a bit like, you know, I could wander up the road to London, Victoria, and I could try getting into John Lewis's headquarters up there. And who knows, maybe if I'm lucky, I could get into the foyer and I could start giving out tasks, telling staff what to do. But it wouldn't work. However, if Nish Kankiwala was to walk into John Lewis headquarters, he would be able to do that because he's the chief executive 
of John Lewis. And only Jesus Christ has the authority to judge. And Jesus is guaranteed to be victorious in that. And when we know that, it changes so much. It enables us to say what Paul says in Romans 12 verse 9, where he says, um, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. One of the reasons a God of justice is such good news is because it can empower forgiveness. It can empower forgiveness because, because we know God's justice will have the final word. It can actually set us free from a prison of bitterness and hatred to know that God absolutely will act and do what is right. And this is not about kind of, oh, we forgive and forget. Um, it's more about forgive and follow because we know that he'll be victorious in the end. We know that justice will be served. And so it seems to me that the only appropriate question, if God really is a good of ju- God of justice, and he is, the question is this, are we ready to meet him? Are we ready to meet his son, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ stands at the end of life's road for everyone without exception. The New Testament speaks with one voice about that. And we'll either stand before him with our sins forgiven or with our sins unforgiven. And scripture tells us, it's quite a sobering thought, that to encounter Jesus with our sins unforgiven will be more awful than words can express. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is how Jesus describes life outside God's love and grace. And that is because God is just. But what God continually holds out to us is this incredible, amazing grace to be able to get right with him, to live with him as our savior and our friend. That's the invitation. And that can be for the first time or for the thousandth time. And in the greatest display of witness ever, of justice ever seen by human eyes, Jesus Christ, just try to get your mind around this. Jesus willingly surrendered himself to the Father's justice. He sweated drops of blood and cried out in pain and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And he died in our place bearing the penalty that our sins deserve, which is death. And he did it so that we could know forgiveness, so that we could know grace and second chances and new life, hope in suffering and strength to face our trials. And the reassurance that because he did that, that there is, as Paul famously put it in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there's no condemnation not one bit for those who are in Christ what incredible justice what amazing grace what an amazing God we have can I invite you to pray with me as I finish